Folks, we've been going through a series in the book of Exodus, and what we've done with Exodus is we split it into three. So firstly, we looked at the journey to freedom where God's people were saved out of slavery in Egypt. They were there for 400 years, and they were saved out of Egypt, and God saves them and brings a people to himself to display his glory to them and to display his glory through them. So the first section we called Journey to Freedom. After he'd freed them, they'd gone through the Red Sea, and then they ended up in the wilderness. And it was in this point in the wilderness, before they get to Mount Sinai, where they receive God's law, where God forms his people. He shapes his people. He shows them his grace. They complain about him, and they want to go right back into slavery. And they complain about him. And he said, and, 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 but even in the midst of their complaining about him, he graciously, graciously provides for them. And that section we called Journey to Formation. And today, we begin the third part of the book of Exodus, which will take us to the end. So you should have received one of these books when you came in. Now these books, for those that don't know, these are our gospel community questions that you'll walk through this week. But we want to encourage anybody, even if you're not part of the life of our church, take one of these, read through the passages, answer some of the questions. And we've got a few more of the old books, so you can have the, the trilogy. You can have the trilogy of the Exodus series here at Cornerstone. So there's a few at the back as you go out. So we're going to look today at journey to communion. So if you've got your Bibles, turn to Exodus chapter 25. According to the schedule, I'm meant to preach through 25, 26, and 27. And that's what I'll be doing. So hold tight, get comfy as much as you can on those pews, and we're going to go and hear from God's Word. Exodus 25, but I'm only going to read verses, 20, verses 1 through to 9. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the people of Israel that they... Take for me a contribution from every man whose heart moves him. You shall receive the contribution for me. And this is the contribution that you shall receive from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, and purple, and scarlet yarns, and fine twine linen, goat hair, tanned ram's skins, goat skins, acacia wood, oil for the lamp, spices for the anointing oil, and for the fragrant incense, onyx stones and stones for setting, for the ephod and for the breastpiece. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst, exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of all its furniture, so you shall make it. Let's pray. Father, bless as we ask. I praise and I do thank you that every bit of your word comes from you and is profitable for us today. Speak to us, we pray, for your glory's sake. Amen. There are two kinds of people in the world. Two. There are those who use the instructions to put up an IKEA flat pack, and there are those who don't. Agreed? took me eight hours once to put up a wardrobe with my brother and we used the instructions because all we had was that terrible little metal thing that they give you. You know when you have to spin it around like this? It's a nightmare. You're using a knife trying to put stuff together. Now whether you are an instruction follower or a flat pack rogue, what you can't argue with is that the instructions provided show us the intention of the IKEA designer. If you follow these instructions, you will see the intention of the designer. And what you'll have in front of you is a finished piece of furniture the way that the designer 
intended. And hopefully that piece of furniture will serve you well. Now, as you read through Exodus 25, 26, and 27, you may be tempted, and I guess most of you are if you read through your Bibles, tempted to think that this is just like another IKEA instruction manual. God's just throwing out his instructions so they can make a temple for him. Now, on one level, you will be right. Because what we've got captured here for us is the instructions for what God's tabernacle is to look like. But if we were just to stop and think, well, they're just the instructions. They weren't really for us. They're not for us. We will miss the intention of God's heart for both his glory and for us, his people, and how the instructions that he gives reveal that to us. There's something about the instructions that reveal what the designer of the IKEA flat pack wants you to experience. And there's something in the instructions that God gives to his people that reveal to us his intentions for us. See, what I think, as you read through these three, three chapters, what I think, I think the answer to this question is answered. What does God want with us? What does God want with us? Now, there's a podcaster and writer for Christianity Today called Sky Jathani, I think his name is, and he says this, that most of us have one of four postures before God, and none of them quite get at the relationship that God wants with us. Some of us have a posture towards God, which is a life from God. It should come up on the screen, a life from God, which means you, you, you want life with God, but what you really want is what God gives you. You want his blessings, you want his gifts, but you don't really want God himself. You want what he gives you to help you fulfill your desires, a life from God. There's a posture of heart that says that there is a life over God. So on one level, yet you have a relationship. You want to have a relationship with God, but what what you really do is not obey him, not live in, in context with him. What you do is you figure out your own life over God. So actually your life and how you decide to live it becomes more important than your relationship with God. Or for some of us, our posture is that we want a life for God. That we want our lives to focus on accomplishing great things for God. That God gives us tasks to accomplish. accomplish. He, He gives us the focus to serve We think that laying down our lives sacrificially and doing something for God is what really matters. See, we want a relationship with God because we want him to get us to do something for him. Or the posture is a life under God. Where we're relating to God according to cause and effect. We obey and God blesses. It's about living a set of rules and rituals that we follow, which often focuses, if we're honest, on our sin. I am terrible, I am rubbish, but if I do this, I'll feel better about myself. Which one of these characterizes your relationship with God? Which one? I don't know why you're here, but are you here because you want something from God? Are you here because you're looking for a set of principles so you can follow, so you can lead a life that is successful? Are you here because you feel like you want to give something back and therefore I, 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 want to, I want to give a life of service to God? 
Or are you thinking that if you do your part, then God will do his part and then life will turn out pretty well? See, folks, all of these approaches towards God fall short. Why? Because none of them are really good news, are they? None of them really captures the magnitude of what God wants with us. So the question is this, what does God want with us? And out of all the things that we could read and all the things that God tells us, here's the heart in these passages of what God is saying. Exodus 25 verse 8 says this, and let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell with them. When you read further on in Exodus 29, it says this, I will dwell among the people of Israel, and I will be their God, and they shall know that I am the, God, the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. Folks, God's primary purpose for us isn't to give us things. And it's not for us to be managed or for you or to me to live our lives over him or even under him. God's primary purpose is to live with us, to live amongst us, that he may dwell amongst us and be our God. In fact, when you read further on, when you get to Exodus 33, this is what it says. As Moses is referring to God, he says this, is it not in your going with us that makes us distinct? Is it not that the fact that you are with us and you travel with us make us different from every other people group on the face of the earth? Folks, as Christians, it is not our good deeds. It is not our great music. It is not good preaching or bang average preaching. It is God's presence that sets us apart. God's presence. See, if you know the story, God's people had just come to Mount Sinai, and God's presence was seen and experienced. It tells us there, when you read through those chapters, there was lightning and there was thunder. It was terrifying, and God's people were able to come close, but not too close. And they could tangibly see the terrifying presence of God. And it's at Sinai where his presence was that God gives them his word, where he reveals to them what it means to be his people and to live as his people. When Moses mediates and intercedes for them, it's at Sinai God's people were conscious of God's presence. See, the problem is this. Mount Sinai wasn't the final destination that God had promised them. Mount Sinai wasn't the promised land. So if they were to leave Sinai, how would God's presence be with them? See, God's people needed a tangible symbol of his presence. And what he instructs in this passage is his heart and the means by which the bond at Sinai was to continue. So I've got three points for you. Number one is this. God's presence is real. Verse 8 and 9 of chapter 25. Let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell in their midst Exactly as I show you concerning the pattern of the tabernacle and of its furniture, so you shall make it. See, at Sinai, the presence of God was clear for them all to see. There was clouds, there was thunder, there was lightning. 
But what we see here is God's intention for his presence still to be with them, but it will be different. He asks God's people to make him a tabernacle that will be a sanctuary for the purpose of dwelling in their midst. And the tabernacle would be a sanctuary, which means a place of holiness because the occupant was the holy God. But this would also be a place of refuge, a place of truth, a place of justice, a place of righteousness, a place of forgiveness. Now, folks, what we need to see here is that the word tabernacle is basically another word for the word tent. And in verse 7 of chapter 26, the word tent is used. See, tabernacle is used to represent the holiness, the set-apartness that comes because the occupant is holy and set apart. However, we should never lose sight as we read this that this is still just a common word for the word tent. Just a common word for the word tent. See, the word was used just to refer to the houses that God's people were living in as they traveled round the wilderness. See, God's command for them is to make a tent for him. That we'd be pitched in the middle of all the other tents. And this shows and declares to the people that God was going to come alongside them, that God was going to be with them, and that God was going to identify with their circumstances. And for him, in those passages, to call it a place of dwelling indicates for us, as we read this, permanency. I'm going to live here. This tabernacle amongst God's people was to be the address of God on earth, the place where God would be found living, just as his glory set on Mount Sinai in chapter 24 and was consistently present at the mountain, so it was the Lord's intention to settle among his people in a tent that would be pitched right at the center of the camp. God was, his presence was real, folks. It was permanent, and it was right in the mix of the people's circumstances. See, God so wanted to be among his people, he was even willing to camp to be with them. Folks, our God is not distant. He's not. Our God identifies with his people, their circumstances, and we have a God who dwells amongst his people. Amen? Amen. Now, I've been a camper for the last 12 years. I'll be honest, my enthusiasm for camping 12 years ago wasn't quite there. But now I think I'm a bit of a pro. We've moved on from an outworld tent that took probably half an hour or so, 45 minutes, with all the, everyone's holding the poles, everyone got a pole. We could never go camping on our own. We could never, we had to have about a million people with us just to help to put up the massive tent like this. And now we've moved on, we've not, we have a blow up tent. A blow-up tent. It's, uh, it's fantastic, the blow-up tent. Well, Sean tells everyone, because Sean's very much like, that's my wife, for those that don't know. She's like, oh, it's brilliant, the blow-up tent. It takes 10 minutes. Okay, but those 10 minutes on me, like this, trying to, <laughs> trying to get it pumping like no one's business. So I'm sweating, I'm knackered. It takes 10 minutes, but it's a workout for me, while Sean chats away, waiting for it to be put up. But we love camping, and but, but, I am very particular regarding how the tent should be t laid out. So we have blow-up beds. They have to be, uh, we have blow-up chairs. They have to be in the certain parts. 
And if it's not in the right part, the intentions of the tent maker are not fulfilled. Okay. Now we go camping with a few other people who bring heated blankets, hoovers, <laughs> microwaves, which shows the intention of the people coming camping is that they want to be comfortable. Agreed? And if that's you, feel rebuked. <laughs> now, folks, as you read through these two chapters, you see that God is very clear on how he wants his tent set out. Now, his particulars are not like my specific particulars, which are about my comfort when I camp, but rather these sections and furniture display his heart and his desire for his relationship with his people. See the difference? So very quickly, let's run through them, that we see God's presence through his word and his grace. He gives them the instructions for the Ark of the Covenant, chapter 25, verses 10 to 22. Now, the Ark of the Covenant was a chest, and this was to hold the word of God, the Ten Commandments, and also there would be a staff and a pot of manna. Pot of manna was to remind them how God had provided for them in the wilderness. I think the staff was there to show that God leads. And the Ark of the Covenant had two, two there should be a picture there coming up. The Ark, there should be a picture, thank you. The Ark of the Covenant, see that? The Ark of the Covenant had two poles, so people could carry it because they had to travel through the wilderness without touching the Ark of the Covenant. So right at the heart of God's dwelling place was to be his word. And it would be his word that would lead and provide for his people. Now the Ark was to be placed in a section called the Most Holy Place or the Holy of Holies, which would have been separated off from the other areas by a large curtain and a large veil. So this ark would have sat with a large curtain and veil around it that separated off from the holy place and then the outer courtyards. Now on top of the Ark of the Covenant, there was like a mercy seat it was called. You read about that in chapter 25 verse 17. Now the Hebrew word for mercy seat is copra which also means cover. So the intention for this was to cover the ark and the word of God, but also it was to be the place where sacrifice was given on the day of atonement when the blood of an animal was spilt for the forgiveness, the atonement and the forgiveness of the people's sins. Now the use of the word copra, cover, indicated something that was used to pay the price to cover an offense and also the means by which a price for an offense was paid. See, the mercy seat, folks, covered the word of God, which God's people fell short of all the time. Despite their hope and their desire to, to, obey, to obey his word, they couldn't and they didn't fulfill it. So the mercy seat covers the word is a picture of covering the offense of God's people because they can't keep his word, but it also is the means by which the price, the punishment of the offense of breaking God's law was paid through sacrifice and the spilling of blood. And in verse 22 of 25, it says this, God says, and it's here where I will meet you and it's here where I will speak. Folks, right at the heart of God's dwelling place was his word, and his grace. Then we see God's presence through his provision. And he goes on talking about the table of bread or the sh table of showbread, chapter 25, 23 to 30. And it was set up in the holy place. So this is outside the holy of holies. 
That was a beautiful table, but this is not the point. And on the table, there were 12 loaves of bread that symbolized God's people, the 12 tribes of Israel. And they were there as a reminder that God provided for each one. And each one had a seat at the table of being God's people. It was a reminder to them that God was their provider, their sustainer. It was a symbol of nearness and provision for every day. And in this, they saw that God's, pre- God's presence through his provision. The next is in chapter 25, 31 to 40, we see God's presence through light, the golden lampstand. Now the lamp was beautiful as you read it. And it had a beautiful design. And it was made to look like a tree. And each part of the tree represented a different stage of life. You see the buds, we see the blossom, we see the almonds. And the lamp was to shine in the darkness. And this was to show God's people that he is light. Which symbolizes his life-giving presence, his life-giving provision, and his holiness. In the tabernacle, he sets out the furniture to display his presence through light. We see God's presence among his people. We see in the tabernacle structure, chapter 26 through to 137, that God's details about how to build the curtains with the detail of cherubim on them, which is like the Garden of Eden when Adam and Eve were kicked out because of their sin, out of the presence of God, the cherubim guarded entry to the presence of God. And these were constructed not to keep people out, but to protect people from the presence of God. God loved them so much that he protected them from him. It wasn't to keep them away. It was to say, if you come any close in the midst of your sin, you will die. I'm protecting you. I'm protecting you from this. And we see there's three zones. You see that in a different different picture later. See the courtyard, the holy place, and the most holy place. And it's in the most holy place, the holy of holies, where God's presence was dwelt. See, what's interesting is, if you know your Bibles, the lost paradise of Eden seems to be having hints coming through in what God is creating here, what God is showing. Now, what's interesting, the curtains were made of twine and and, and material, and the colors were this. They were blue, purple, and scarlet. Now, blue is is the color for heavenly origin. Purple, is the color for royalty. Scarlet was the color for blood sacrifice. See, we see here God's presence among his people. We see next, as you read it through chapter 27, 1 to 8, the bronze altar that shows God's presence through sacrifice. Now, the bronze altar stood in the outer courts, and it was like the Ark of the Covenant. It had two poles on it, and it could be moved around. Now, the altar, as people came into the outer court, was the first thing that they saw. The first thing that they saw as they entered in. And it was a reminder to them that they cannot draw near to God without a sacrifice in their place. See, there remains a gap between sinners and God. And the communion of God with sinners requires sacrifice. See, we see the presence of God through the court of tabernacle. Chapter 27, 9 through to 19. It's a reminder to them that God's presence was guarded. That they didn't have free access. They couldn't just waltz in like the fawns. But what we see here, it was a foretaste. It was a partial fulfillment. 
See, this fence all around the tabernacle only had one entrance. And it was a daily reminder. It was a repetition of the mountain. See, Moses went up like a high priest who was able to go into the Holy of Holies. The elders were able to go halfway. And God's people were at the bottom in the midst of the courtyard. See, the presence of God is so holy and terrifying, limitations were put in place and representation was needed for God's people to represent it. Guarded presence of God. And we see finally there, chapter 27, 20 to 21, God's presence is always with us through the oil for the lamp. It's interesting, folks, as you read through this, the direction of God's instructions are inside out. Now it's reversed, it's outside in. See, God has shown them, I am coming to you. And now he's shown them, this is what it means for you to come to me. See, the priests was have to get oil from people and they will keep the incense burning, the lights burning as a constant reminder all the time to all generations that even in the midst of darkness, God's light would continue to shine, God's presence with us. The question is, what does God want from us? What does God want for us? Answer, he wants to dwell amongst his people. And God was willing to identify with his people and put everything in place to make that happen. Now what's interesting, if you know your Bibles, as you read through the Bible, what you'll find and see is that that tent becomes a temple. It goes from a fabric dwelling place to a brick dwelling place. And as you read through, you see promises that even that built temple that was built out in the same way as what we've just described was not quite enough. And as you read through what you'll see, promises that God will dwell among his people, not in a tent or a temple, but in a person. Number two, God's presence is known through Jesus. 700 years before Jesus was born, Isaiah wrote this. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. And during his his ministry, the Lord Jesus, as he walks the temple, because God's people had completely forgotten what the temple was for, they were abusing everything. They were trying to make money off people. Jesus goes in and he clears the temple. And the religious leaders are fuming with him. And he turns around to them and says, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. He said, "How, how? Because this temple took 46 years to build. How is that going to happen? But what he was speaking about wasn't the brick temple, but the temple of his body. Folks, Jesus is God with us. Jesus is the tabernacle of God. Jesus dwelt amongst his people. See, the tent, the tabernacle, and even the temple was just a foreshadow of God taking on flesh and living amongst his people. Amen. And what we see as you go through these instructions are things that point to Jesus. See, very very quickly, Jesus is the true and better tabernacle. 
John 1.14, it says this, And the Word became flesh, and He dwelt amongst us. We have seen His glory. Glory is only the Son from the Father, full of grace and, and truth. How can a holy God dwell amongst a sinful people? How can a sinful man enter into a holy place? See, ultimately, the tabernacle is pointing us to another, to the true presence of God dwelling with his people. Jesus is the true tabernacle. Jesus is the true and better ark. See, it tells us in the Bible that Jesus is the word of God, the final word of God, that Jesus is the one who fulfills the word of God. And not only that, Jesus is the better sacrifice, indicating the mercy seat, that Jesus is the means by which our offenses and our sins are covered, and Jesus is the means by which the price of offense, our offense against God, is paid. Amen? Jesus is the true and better bread. John 6, Jesus says, I am the bread of life. He is the better manna. If you eat of him, you are satisfied and you will never perish. Amen? Jesus is the true and better lampstand. John chapter 1, it says, In him was life, and the life was the light of men. That the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Jesus is the light of the world. And in his light, we come from the domain of darkness into the light of his glory, and that gives us life. Jesus is the true and better altar. See, folks, we go through his sacrifice. It's Jesus that bridges, bridges the gap and the divide. See, we approach him now through his body that was broken, his blood that was spilt, that leads on to the next, that Jesus is the true and better entrance. Did you notice before the colors of the curtains that separated people from God? Blue, purple, and scarlet. Blue, Why? Heavenly origin, purple, royalty, scarlet, blood. We now enter in through the sacrifice of the one who comes from heaven, the king of kings who died for broken people like you and me. And on the cross, the veil was ripped into. No more separation. We can boldly come through Jesus into the presence of God, and Jesus is the true and better presence. Because Jesus left the throne of heaven, took on flesh and dwelt amongst us, and we now see the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Amen? Amen. But after the Lord Jesus rose, he ascended to be with his Father. The presence of God in Christ was no longer amongst his people. But Jesus said this, when I go to be there with the Father, the Holy Spirit will come. My Spirit will come. And actually, it'll be better if I go than if I stay, because actually my presence will not be confined to this human body, but my presence will enter into you. Enter into you. Which takes me to the final point, folks. God's presence is in us and seen through us. 1 Peter tells us, as you come to him, who is a living stone who's been rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves are like living stones, being built up into a spiritual house, to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices accepted to God through Jesus Christ. We are now the tent in which the Spirit of God dwells permanently. 
We, God's people, Christians, those who've put their trust in Jesus, are now the living stones being made into a spiritual house where Jesus is the cornerstone. It's all built upon him. And God's presence dwells in his people and it is displayed through his people. The tent was to be in the midst of the people and people noticed that they were distinct. Jesus walked around and those who followed people noticed that they were distinct. We as God's people have the spirit of God in us that unites us to him and unites us to each other. And folks, this is the reality of this. If we are the, pre- we are the tent that the presence of God is, people should know and see a difference. We are now the temple of the living God. He dwells in us. Jesus unites us, the Holy Spirit enables us to display his glory to the world. Now in the first nine verses that I read in chapter 25, we see God proposing to live amongst God's people. Proposing them. See, God is everywhere present. He's omnipresent. But the indwelling of his presence would only be known and experienced by them if they responded rightly to him. Now let me clarify, God had already saved them. It was all down to him. If you're a Christian, God has already saved you. It's all down to him. However, knowing and enjoying the presence of God and the blessings of that is experienced in how we respond to that saving grace. How we respond to it. See, God proposed the building of a tent, but this is what they needed. Verse two, they needed willing hearts. Take a contribution from everyone whose heart is moved. Willing hearts. They needed to give sacrificially. You just read through all the gold, the silver, the bronze. And they needed to respond with humble obedience. Do it exactly as I say. See, centuries later, God's people were building the temple and their hearts got distracted by other things. In fact, their own lives, their own houses. And Haggai goes and goes, you need to consider your ways because the Lord's temple is in ruins and you are using the best material to build your own hearts. And they were walk, own houses, and they were walking in complete disobedience. Folks, can I say this? God has saved us and we are his people being built up into his dwelling place. But his presence and the blessings of that requires willing hearts. Our hearts need to be captured by him, not other things or other people. It requires sacrificial giving, not only our money or our time, but our whole lives. Paul, writing to the church in Romans, it says, in light of what God has done for you, give your bodies as a living sacrifice. Die to self, not just give a little bit in the box. I'll just save a little bit on a Friday. Living sacrifice. A willing heart. A sacrificial life. Humble obedience. Where we see this as the authority. We allow the authority of God's word and his grace to be centered to who we are as individuals and centered to who we are as his people and he will provide and he will lead constantly reminded through communion and baptism of the sacrifice that Jesus made for us. God's dwelling place is his people. You. Me. What does God want for us? 
He wants to dwell amongst his people and display his glory to them and then to display his glory through them. That's why at Cornerstone Church, we're passionate about church planting. That's why. Because what people need is not more food. What people need is not social justice. These things are important. What people need is the gospel of Jesus Christ. And the presence of God and the wonder of the gospel is seen through his people, not through a cause, folks. Not through friendship. You can be a friend all the way to the gates of hell. It's through the word of God and the grace of God at the center of the people of God and God's presence being made known as people have willing hearts, sacrificial lives, and walk in humble obedience to who he is. That's why we're passionate about seeing people come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. Because we as living stones, yes, we gather as God's people. We are part of a community that proclaim the excellencies of who he is. But we do go and we do work and we do go to university and we do go to schools. But as God's people, we represent as a kingdom of priests where we are. And God's presence and glory is seen in how we live with humble hearts, sacrificial giving and obedience to God's word, and that will be tough, and that will be difficult. Praise God that he is in you, strengthening you, reminding you, and together we limp along for the glory of God. This gift of salvation is free, but we can miss out on his presence with our willing hearts, surrendering ourselves and walking in obedience. What does God want from us? He wants to dwell amongst his people. And here's the really good news. One day Jesus is going to come back and wipe every tear and answer every question and deal with every suffering. And he will be in the midst of his people, amen. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is your reality. You are outside the tent, the presence of God. And the only way you can know his presence is to see that Jesus has ripped open those curtains, dealt with your brokenness and your sin, and the Father waits with his arms wide open for you to come in. All of him, nothing of you. And then you will know his glory. You will know his wonder. You will know his it's not just an instruction manual. It's God's heart for his people. Amen. Let me pray. Let me sing. We'll get the kids in. Let's baptize these boys. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you for your goodness and your grace. We thank you so much that you're a God who wants to be present amongst us. I thank you that you've captured our hearts. I thank you that you've loosened our hands. I thank you that you've opened our eyes to see your word. And Father, now, as we sing and celebrate, Father, now, as we behold Jesus, Father, now, as we see young men, young men who could be distracted by so many different things, wanting to live for you, walk in obedience, identifying with the death and burial and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, baptized into the life of his people, we thank you. So bless them, be with them, Stare our affections for you and for his people. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's stand and let's sing.